Iran's asymmetric capabilities. The Islamic Republic has invested considerably in the past four decades in an asymmetric, long-range strike capability, broad global terror network, as well as several other threat vectors to be able to have a cost-effective foreign and security policy that plays to these asymmetric and ideological strengths. Defense Strategic Review what you're saying is that we really need to take responsibility for our own security because we can't rely on the US. Has that message really sunk in? And do you think that's the kind of force that Houston and Smith will be trying to generate? India's relations with Southeast Asia. So I think the strategic and security aspects of the relationship are moving much faster than sort of the economic and commercial relations for a various host of reasons, including domestic politics. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast with me, Olivia Nelson. To kick off this episode, Katya Theodorakis speaks to Ben and Ben Taliblu about Iran's military power and how the country is investing in asymmetric capabilities. They discuss the challenges posed by anti-status quo powers and Iran's deterrent strategy. Ben, thanks so much for joining us this morning. It's a really great privilege to be able to ask you um, some questions on some really fascinating and important topics. Now, you've described Iran as a conventionally weak but asymmetrically strong power. Could you explain this a bit more and also where this is evolving to, please? Sure. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you and uh, thanks to ASPI for having me. Uh, In essence, if you look at the conventional military capabilities of the Islamic Republic at key junctures during the eight-year Iran-Iraq war from 1980 to 1988, or the rebuilding of some of the regime's military capabilities after, or today just a general kind of military balance survey, that which you would call a conventional military capability pales in comparison to the conventional military capabilities of Iran's adversaries, particularly in the Persian Gulf region, particularly against Israel, particularly against Turkey, which is a NATO-aligned state, and several other countries, and perhaps most importantly, uh, against the United States of America, as well as some other Five Eyes countries, Australia for one. But ultimately, uh, many countries still perceive a military and security policy threat from the Islamic Republic. So the question is why? And the Islamic Republic has invested considerably in the past four decades in an asymmetric, long-range strike capability, broad global terror network, uh, as well as a sev- as well as several other kind of threat vectors to be able to have a cost-effective foreign and security policy that plays to these asymmetric and ideological strengths that play to the regime's political, military, and strategic ways it chooses to fight to its own unique way of prosecuting wars, entering conflicts early, trying to shape them through gray zone competition rather than, th- than through formal set-piece overt kind of conflicts. And ultimately, the Islamic Republic embodies that dissonance, conventional weakness, but asymmetric strength. You know, it doesn't have, for instance, uh, many fighter jets, but it does have the Middle East's largest ballistic missile arsenal, for instance. Uh, It is now a major drone power, such that even the Russian Federation is potentially interested in getting unmanned combat aerial vehicles from the Islamic Republic. And in this space, uh, Iran has had something of a revolution in precision of these unmanned aerial uh, strike capabilities of these unmanned aerial threats. And the great fear now is not that the Islamic Republic will forever be conventionally weak, but asymmetrically strong, that coupled with increased risk tolerance, for instance, by this new ultra-hardline elite in Tehran at the helm, that the Islamic Republic will be 
something of a hybrid uh, military power, selectively layering on new military capabilities as it's able to procure them from places its agents like to go shopping, produce them and reverse engineer them at home, and then once it perfected them, to proliferate it to proxies and partners abroad. And in so doing, the regime can selectively fix its conventional military deficiencies and not forsake, but build on its asymmetric military strengths. So within the next decade or so, the Islamic Republic is slated to become a more effective hybrid warfighter, building on this very unequal paradigm of conventional weakness and asymmetric military strength. Now, that's really fascinating, and the implications are, are profound. I'm just thinking, are we combining, in a sense, sort of this this kind of these asymmetric, asymmetric capabilities and, and the thinking that's made groups like the Taliban successful in sort of, you know, having the strategic patience and outlasting the U.S. on a, on a drawn-out battlefield? Are we sort of combining this kind of guerrilla thinking with more sophisticated hardware and that even though there's a resource-constrained environment and they're not, you know, the U.S. in terms of tech, that we're looking at a completely new threat that will also require new modes of deterrence where we have to now proactively think ahead and shape this space? Indeed. I, I think you put your money on exact on your finger on exactly where the money is or exactly where the delta is, which is the, the changing threat vectors, where if you have some kind of foreign constraints, if you don't have all the time, all the money, all the capability, all the resources in the world, you are forced to innovate. And in this sense, necessity is the mother of invention. And the Islamic Republic remains highly receptive to external stimuli. So based on its past performance in many of these different theaters in the Middle East for conflict, based on the military successes and failures of its proxies, based on its perceptions as to why the U.S. has, will, and continue to pull its punches in this kind of gray zone and growing gray zone conflict against the Islamic Republic, why it will continue to move in these spaces. So its processing method, how it thinks about national security, is equally as important as how it thinks it's winning or how it thinks it's losing in terms of the military balance day to day in many of the theaters of the Middle East where it itself is formally involved or it is indirectly but still critically involved. So this is exactly the evolving space for it. And it's not just limited to the Islamic Republic. You put your finger on the Taliban, that's that's precisely the case. Never undervalue or underestimate or mock your adversary because they don't achieve military success in the pattern or method that you think is the most optimal way to achieve military success. And never forget that military force, military capabilities, weapons that literally are designed to go boom and explode and kill people, are ultimately serving a political purpose. And there's the political utility, just going back to that original kind of Klaus Witzian thinking, how best these countries employ force. And this gets back to the privilege of thinking that politics and diplomacy versus military conflict and the, the domain for basically killing are fundamentally different. Uh, whereas for most of the world, and particularly with countries like China, Russia, Iran, they do see it as a continuum. And This limited capability with this cognizance of a continuum is why they're evolving on a very fast rate in terms of these military technologies and the political utility of these military technologies. It sounds like we need to do a lot more to actually um, get our thinking around what's coming because well, from what you just described, I was sort of going back to this kind of you know, cliche of the Taliban, or the, the Americans may have the watches, but we have all, the Taliban have all the time. Are we looking at an environment where 
there might be even sort of thinking beyond Iran. And as you were saying, there might be a broader sort of coalition or axis of sort of anti-status quo powers. And we see that in sort of various far like the Shanghai um, Cooperation Organization. And we're seeing more and more of this kind of mix um, between conventional and asymmetric um, forces. Will we be dealing with an environment where our adversaries will make their own watches and they'll be able to um, set the space and the time continuum on which we operate? That's a very good riff on that analogy, actually. I never thought of it that way. But but yes, and not only yes, but how they measure success and how they measure time is also qualitatively different than how you in Australia or us back in Washington uh, may be measuring success and counting time and how much is too much and how little is too little and what's worth it then versus what's worth it now. These are all very, the inputs to these conversations are very different than the outputs. What you think, how you think about the problem matters as much, if not more, than how you think the problem ought to be solved. And the first step towards offsetting these threats is understanding how our adversaries think about the problem to see how they're trying to shape solutions to the problem. And that means understanding that they basically are operating on their own time zones, on fundamentally different time constraints. And ultimately, I think they're pretty cognizant of our conventional military advantages, of our relatively high threshold for the use of force, of our relative disconnect between politics and the military or the political and diplomatic tool versus the military or kinetic tool. And ultimately, that disconnect versus, in their minds, it being more of a continuum is why we're seeing many of these actors choose to become powerful gray zone actors. And even countries that are adversaries that have robust conventional military capabilities, countries like the Russian Federation, are interested in moving into this space. And you see it with their quote-unquote proxy warfare uh, with things like the Wagner Group, as well as potentially what the implications may be of Iranian drone sales, supplies, or transfers uh, to the Russian Federation, which would be a historic first. Mm, I'm not sure if equipping the Mozart Group as sort of the counter would be the solution forward, <laughs> but maybe coming back to uh, what you touched on earlier about there is like a changed um, the parameters of risk averseness and risk um tolerance have changed. Is that something we can shape in our environment? Could you expand on this a little bit more, what that actually means, this imbalance, or how we can we can make sure that we don't get taken advantage of here, but that we understand the calculus? I think it's critical. And, and let me uh, reason by analogy here again with, with an example that I know, which is the Iran analogy. Uh, things have changed significantly in the Islamic Republic. As some of these capabilities have evolved, the willingness to use them has also grown, which has implications for the uh, arrival of some of these technologies onto new or existing battlefields in the Middle East. And that analogy I want to paint for you is the one given to the public by the commander of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Aerospace Force. Uh, his name is Amir Ali Hajizadeh. He oversees basically the Middle East's largest ballistic missile arsenal. And he's talking in a state-sponsored documentary in the aftermath of the Iranian missile barrage uh, that was the response to the killing of the U.S. Uh, to the U.S. killing of Soleimani in Iraq in January 2020. He's saying that the Americans were deterred, fundamentally deterred, by the Iranian willingness to risk conflict. Uh, and basically Iran having overtly engage in a military operation using its most attributable weapons, basically shunning the proxy warfare, shunning the gray zone competition, and in very, very select instances, being willing to go right up to the line. Uh, this kind of thinking plays to uh, at the title of a book that a former CIA director, I believe Michael Hayden, had written, which is called Playing to the Edge. So what you're seeing to some of these adversaries uh, doing now is they're willing to play to the edge. And in places where they know they cannot win the competition in terms of the military balance. They will try to win the competition 
uh, based on the balance of resolve. And that means using the capabilities that they have, which they know are inferior, but at an earlier stage in the conflict, hoping that the deployment or employment of these capabilities will try to deter a much greater conventionally armed adversary from responding in kind and basically force the adversary, which is stronger, to absorb the cut, to absorb the blow, and to accommodate. And again, all this comes from the very coherent thinking of politics and force, rather than the disconnect that exists in many of our countries between politics and force. And this is, again, a space to watch. Conventionally weak adversaries who are more willing than ever before to contest American and Western power, increasingly using military force. Because if they don't believe they can win in terms of balance of capability, they're going to try their hands at the balance of resolve. And the Iranian case in the Middle East today totally exemplifies that. Mm, And I could imagine the lessons too for, you know, I guess from your perspective, it's the gray zone between Iran and Israel. But I can see so many parallels to be explored for, let's say, the gray zone for lack of a better term, between Australia and China, or more more generally in terms of the thinking, what, what signals did we send about our risk calculations through the retreat, the US retreat from Afghanistan and bye-bye support or how we're reorienting or adjusting ourselves to this new geostrategic calculus in that region. I think those are the areas we should look at. And unfortunately, we're out of time. We could continue this discussion um, for much longer. Thank you so much for your insights. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Earlier this month, Prime Minister Albanese and Deputy Prime Minister Miles announced that there'll be a defence strategic review focused on force structure, force posture and preparedness, and investment prioritisation to ensure defence has the right capabilities to meet our growing strategic needs. Dr Marcus Hellyer speaks to Michael Shoebridge about some of the challenges for the review, including its timeline for delivery. Well, hello, Michael. I'm sitting here and I have in my hand a fresh copy of your latest strategic insight, which is looking at the defence strategic review that the government announced a couple of weeks ago. It's called Miles Defence Strategic Review, an exploding suitcase of challenges to resolve by March 2023. You use that metaphor of the exploding suitcase a, a couple of times. What do you mean by it? Well, two main things, Marcus. Uh, The first one is before the reviewers even get to do anything new about what defence should do, how it should be structured, postured, kind of capabilities, kind of operations, all of which Prime Minister Albanese says he wants the review to get into. It's got to look at the state of affairs uh, in the defence budget. And unfortunately, everything that's already packed into that suitcase doesn't fit So there's an exploding budget problem to be dealt with before they move a muscle. And then the other problem is the compressed time the reviewers have. If this thing has to be having decisions made on it by March next year, which is when the nuclear-powered submarine task force report gets put forward, they have no time uh, to do anything other than write up things they already have in their hot little hands. And that's why getting this product out so fast was important. Mm-hmm. So Angus Houston, Stephen Smith, the leads on the review, they're going to walk in, open the suitcase, it's going to explode in the, their faces. What do you think are the two biggest things they're going to have to deal with straight up? Well, beyond... The current plan is unaffordable because of all the things that have been packed into the 2016 budget line. Uh, The two big challenges they have 
are climate change and the way it affects our near region in far more damaging ways than anyone seems to have got their mind around. That has inescapable consequences for the defence organisation and defence doesn't want to face that. And then the second one, everybody talks about what a complex world we're in and what a complex strategic environment. Actually, it's become unfortunately very simple. There is now a direct security challenge in our near region from China and that should really change mindsets in a big way. Do you think it has? I mean, traditionally for the last 70 years, the main role for the ADF has been to generate contributions into coalition task forces, mainly US-led task forces. Now, what you're saying is that we really need to take responsibility for our own security because we can't rely on the US. Has that message really sunk in? And do you think that's the kind of force that Houston and Smith will be trying to generate? Well, I hope it is, but both of the reviewers are people that had their most intense leadership experience during the era you're talking about, when a balanced force with a range of options where the Australian government could by choice make a contribution to a bigger US coalition, and all the shortfalls uh, in operating that force would magically be met by our big coalition partner. That's the world... Uh, that they spent their time in leadership around defence in, they have to let go of all of the assumptions about that world and think more like the Ukrainians. Now, the lesson of Ukraine for this review is partners and allies help you if you can show you can help yourself. And that means having self-reliant capability in a way we haven't thought about seriously since the DIB review in the late 80s. To me, the other striking thing about Ukraine is that in the eight years since 2014, they completely reinvented themselves you know, and completely modernised their armed forces in a way that just seems completely foreign to the, the timelines for our defence organisation. Well, and the Deputy Prime Minister, Richard Miles, has said some good things about this. You know, He's interested in what happens in one, two, three and five years, not 10, 20 and 30 years. That's good. That's probably why he's wanted this rapid review. But it's easy to say and hard to do. And one of the four big things that I think the review needs to think about, so there's climate change and what it means for the defence organisation in our in our damaged region that we're already facing. Uh, there's China as a direct security challenge. The other one is how on earth will the Australian taxpayer and public put up with spending all this money on defence and potentially more money if defence can't find new ways to increase our military power quickly? And that means in the one, three and five years that, that we're hearing about, not 10, 20 and 30. I think that that's one of the key problems. So it's interesting that the government put a timeline of 2032-33 on the, the DSR, that that's the timeline that it's interested in, so the next 10 years, but so many of the capabilities that are in the, the shopping list aren't being delivered until after 2030-32. So that is the challenge. How do we break out of that? And I think it's very difficult when you, we have those mega projects such as submarines and frigates that will be absorbing tens of billions of dollars in that decade before they deliver anything. So what is what what room is there for the review team to actually do something new and different? Well, that's that's the exploding suitcase that's the budget. 
Of course, there is one of these mega projects. And remember, uh, submarines, frigates, the hardened networked army, all of these ideas came out of the 2009 White Paper, which was when Angus Houston was the chief of the Defence Force. So in a way, he's got to somehow distance himself from one of the key uh, professional contributions he made if he's going to question that force structure, which is pretty much the force structure that defence is still pursuing despite the enormous changes in our world. So the one undecided mega project out of all that that was repeated in the 09, 2013, 2016 white papers and unquestioned in the 2020 strategic update is the massive multi-billion dollar investment in infantry fighting vehicles, which will give Australia over 700 heavily armoured vehicles that only look deployable when the US provides everything we don't have. And I think Land 400 Phase 3, the infantry fighting vehicle, is the one remaining big uncommitted pot of cash that gives the review team some flexibility to do something different. So I think that will be high on their list of, of things to examine. But I do think it is it, it is just truly bizarre to me that in 2009, in that white paper, the government of the day said we needed to increase our submarine capability and we would do it starting by 2025, we would have new submarines. We are now 13 years down the track and we are even further away than we were then in having new submarines. So, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm not quite sure what the answer is, but what we've been doing just hasn't really been working. Yeah, well, I mentioned that in this um, insight and I talk about are we at a super hornet moment like uh, with the submarines, mm. like the defence organisation was with air combat capability. If you remember when the classic FA-18 Hornets were getting old and there were issues about uh, their airframe, their centre barrels, their avionics, would they be capable enough to keep operating and would they uh, be robust and reliable enough because they were ageing and, and to wait until the Joint Strike Fighter turned up? And the defence advice to ministers was stay with the plan. The plan is we spend all this money upgrading the, the classic Hornet and we wait for the new thing, the, the JSF, to turn up. And the schedules kept slipping. The JSF kept getting delayed, just like this future submarine is now off much further in the distance. It took a decisive minister, Brendan Nelson, to say, your transition plan doesn't work. Uh, upgrading and keeping this older thing in operation for so long is not a good plan. And instead of spending all that money upgrading the old thing and trying to make it last he directed defence to get the bridging capability, the Super Hornets. You could imagine uh, doing that with the submarines. Instead of this incredibly technically risky, expensive and complex um, upgrade and life extension, why not just keep them operating while you build a new interim submarine that might have a lot of limitations? It might only be able to operate in our nearer region, but we have a direct mm -hmm. security challenge there. Do a Super Hornet with the submarines. Well, and the irony of the Super Hornet as a bridging capability is that it's actually become a core part of the force structure and will serve its entire, you know, life. Uh, it's not a, a gap filler. It's now part of the, the force. And I think it would be the same thing if we got a new conventional submarine. It's not a gap filler. We have to be aware that the transition to nuclear submarines could last until the 2060s or, you know, even longer. And so if we get another conventional submarine, it will be part of the force for a very long 
but how much how much risk do we pack in to what's already an intense full cycle docking program with the Collins by trying to essentially renew everything oh. but the tube yeah look I, my own view is is we have a capability gap already in the submarine space that will only get worse and worse as we sit around waiting for SSNs to show up sometime around 2040 if we're just relying on on the columns and again I think that's going to be one of the major issues for the the defense strategic review team to look at is that submarine capability gap but I I would say that well one way to fill that gap is is not to automatically default to another submarine but to look, explore other capabilities that that can fill that and you know I'm on the record as saying is B, B21 bomber is something we should be looking at but that's not the only option we should be looking at well we're back to how little time the reviewers have and how much complexity they have to deal with so they're going to need a whole lot of found objects you know ideas from other people that help them. Mm-hmm. Uh, do their compressed work. That's what this strategic insight is about. Yeah. Uh, one one big thing is uh, implementation of orcas, which is related to faster capability uh, getting into the hands of our military. Um, one idea uh, that I remind people of in, in this report is the one from Peter Jennings and Bob Clark about setting up an Aussie version of the U.S., Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency. And and the new government seems to be open to an idea like that. Well, the good thing about that is it's a whole new, fast-moving way of getting capability into the hands of our military that could pick up the entire AUKUS agenda except for the nuclear-powered submarines and be a new institutional way of addressing this systemic problem, which is why is our force development and capability acquisition program so slow? It adds a whole separate fast-moving machine and it's laced right into AUKUS. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Now, the really big question, 2%. Is a number around 2% or 2.2% enough to develop the the force Australia needs as to have a kind of self-reliant defence capability in this era of great power competition? Well, Biden, President Biden, when he was asked a very complex question about would the US come to Taiwan's military assistance if China attacked it, he gave a very complicated answer, which was yes. Uh, my complicated answer to is 2% enough to fund this, this plan that defence already has is no. Uh, the budget is already broken. Uh, defence has packed all the AUKUS spends in there. It's put $9.9 billion for the Signals Directorate in there, which is a risky program all by itself. Uh, none of these things were thought about in the fixed funding line from mm-hmm. the 2016 white paper that the Albanese government signed up to. And we've got inflation much higher than that budget and, line. And that's predicted. eating into defence's buying power, just as it's eating into a Aussie mums and dads' buying power. Yeah, so 2% is already off the table because just to do everything defence already plans to do without any single new thing from this review, 2% of GDP is not enough. It's going to be hard, though, for the government to increase it at this time, but my view is it has to be done. Well, this is back to defence needs a way of showing it can increase Australia's military power much faster than it's been able to in the past that, that, years. That, and I, I think that's exactly right. You know, And it, it doesn't help if you're spending money, but it's delivering ships and submarines in 10 or 20 years' time. You know. You've got urgent needs to increase our security because of the direct challenge from China. 
You've got emerging obvious challenges about disaster relief in the region and at home from climate change and no improvements to that despite the budget going to $70 billion. That That cannot be the outcome of this review. Anyway, I would uh, commend this strategic insight to our, our listeners and strongly recommend they, they have a look at it on the ASPE website. On a slightly different note, Michael, um, you've decided it's time to move on from ASPE. I personally am I'm quite sad about that, but I, I would like to acknowledge the amazing work you've done at ASPE over four and a half years. You've not just been contributing to the strategic and defence debate in Australia in many ways. You've been leading that debate and not just in one area, but in so many different areas, you know, China, the alliance, great power rivalry, military capability, defence budgets, industry policy, emergent technologies. I can't really think of anybody who's sort of made such a broad contribution in so many areas. And so I would just like to commend you for that work, but also personally, um, everything I've written over the last four and a half years, there's as much of you in it as my own thoughts, and I'd just like to thank you for the intellectual exchanges we've had over that time. And um, I'm going to miss you, Michael, and I wish you all the best in the future. Well, thanks, Marcus. It, it's been an absolute pleasure, and Aspie's been a team sport over this whole time. Finally, Barney Graywell speaks to Dr. Tista Prakash about the relationship dynamics between India and Southeast Asia and their growing strategic convergence as they tackle shared challenges. So Tista, when we talk about the Indo-Pacific, we rarely talk about the dynamics between India and Southeast Asia. Can you tell us a bit more about what's happening? Sure, Bonnie, and thank you for having me at this podcast. I think with Indian Southeast Asia relations, there's been a massive strategic convergence of late, of course, giving historical context of their relations. In 1991, India launched their Look East foreign policy, which was to sort of to engage India more strategically with the Southeast Asian region. And that has now, of course, been sort of morphed into the Act East policy with the Modi administration. And now I think there's there's a growing sort of security and strategic convergence between the two regions. And it's, of course, driven by a, an assertive China in the South China Sea and with the India-China border clashes. And that's really what's sort of driving the, the growing relations between India and Southeast Asia. And of course, we must understand that Southeast Asia isn't a monolithic body. It has diverse interests, diverse bodies. So there is um, a lot more nuance here that you know, we don't often talk about. Um, I think that's, that's something that we should continue to talk about. So when India looks at Southeast Asia um, amongst its partners there, who does it rank the highest? So that's a really tough question, Barney, but I think uh, there is, um, there's no standout answer. But historically, India has been very sort of close to Vietnam, to Indonesia, to Philippines, and that's largely coming out of a historical context. The anti-colonial movement was led by Nehru, and then you had Sukarno, and they had the sort of the non-alignment movement. And, and that's, um, while the relationship hasn't been as strong since sort of the Cold War, I think um, moving into the next century, there is a lot more sort of growing assertiveness in terms of um, diversification in their partnerships, given the US-China sort of um, bipolarization that's happening. So India seems to be a very strong like-minded partner for Vietnam. 
because of the um, you know historical reasons, but also just the South China Sea making China a a threat to both. <laughs> but I think also for Philippines with the recent sort of Brahmos um, uh, transfer that's been finalized, Malaysia now is also um, looking to India as a defense export partner. Um, Indonesia is also now um, with you know Modi and Joko. We had initially started out on a good foot, but that kind of fell out because of different priorities, I guess. But um, you can see within my answer that there is various different partners that you know India likes to engage with in the region. So you just spoke about defense exports, India to Southeast Asia. That's really something we don't hear about. Uh, not much has been written written about that. But India and um, Philippines recently finalized an agreement to export the Indian-made BrahMos missile uh, to the Philippines. And as I understand, uh, other countries like Indonesia are also interested. So what does that mean for the region if India becomes um, a de- defense exporter to Southeast Asia? I think that's a really good question because it fulfills the priorities of both sides, right? So India is looking to become a big defense exporter by 2025. It wants to increase its um, export rate to 5 billion, if I'm not wrong. And um, countries like Philippines are really looking to modernize their military. Um, And that's been, you know, a bipartisan approach there with the Duterte government and now the Marcos government. They are looking to sort of diversify and um, militarize their their navy and their armed forces. So India looks like a credible sort of non-partisan because they don't want to necessarily sort of anger China or the US. So India looks like the sweet middle point to to sort of engage with in terms of, you know, for both sides to reach their goals. I'm just going to come to the economic side now. We all know that India pulled out of the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, also known as RCEP, and that's been a source of friction between India and Southeast Asian states. What do you see happening with RCEP, but also India's economic partnerships in the region? So it was definitely a case of sort of one step forward, two step backwards for India's engagement with Southeast Asia. But I, this is my personal opinion, I don't necessarily think of it as a wholly negative kind of setback for India, or India, Southeast Asia relations, because we must also put it in context, right? Southeast Asia was very keen to engage India with RCEP. And you could see that with sort of, you know, Singapore was the most ardent supporter. Um, you know, it was the ASEAN chair in 2019 and it was really pushing to make India a part of RCEP. And, you know, Indonesia was the chair of the RCEP sort of, um, uh, you know, coordination mechanism. And it, there was really a lot of impetus, you know, in, in, in terms of like growing the, the, the economic relations between the two regions. But of course, for domestic reasons, um, India couldn't join RCEP, but but the doors have yet, you know, th- they've still remained open for India to join. And with IPEF, so the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, there is there is a lot more energy in the commercial and economic space for India to join. Um, and 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 the recent um, Delhi dialogue that was held kind of showed that India is very much keen to engage with Southeast Asia as a comprehensive strategic partner. And and there's there's room. There's still very much sort of room to maneuver. And um, I think there's yet hope. So I'm just going to talk more about the future now. Where do you see India's ties with Southeast Asia heading, say, in the next decade? So I think the strategic and security aspects of the relationship are moving much faster than sort of the economic and commercial relations for a various host of reasons, including domestic politics. But I think given, you know, the the burgeoning defense relationships between India and Southeast Asia, um, the trilateral sort of naval exercises um, that are being held between India, Singapore, Thailand, um, and, you know, India and Vietnam being sort of strategic comprehensive partners, there's a lot more 
um, room for repair and replenishment. Um, and, and I think moving forward, the security cooperation and the defense cooperation is only going to increase given India's role as a defense exporter to the region. Um, you know, a 375 million deal with, with, uh, you know, the Brahmos deal with Philippines is, does not happen casually. It's a very sort of, um, it's a big encouraging kind of promise in the future, um, of, 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 of a replenishment there as well. And it's a shot in the arm for India's defense exports, of course, but it's, it's more, it tells you something about the future as well. And the Indo-Pacific essentially is now coming closer and, intra-Indo-Pacific ties are becoming stronger. And the India-Southeast Asia relations um, are only an example of, of how a changing balance of power in the region is impacting um, sort of, you know, intra-Asian um, relations. And I think um, ideologically and, you know, culturally, Southeast Asia and India had a lot of commonalities and sort of building a defense and security kind of um, framework will only enhance the sort of the overall kind of relations of the two regions. So there's only good news ahead, Bonnie. Thanks so much, Tisa. Thank you. That's a wrap on this episode. This week you had conversations with Katya Theodorakis, head of ASPI's counterterrorism program, and Benham Ben Talablu, senior fellow in the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, Dr. Marcus Hellyer, senior ASPI analyst, and Michael Shoebridge, director of Defense, Strategy, and National Security, Barney Graywell, ASPI analyst and Dr. Tista Prakash, Research Associate with the Lowy Institute's Southeast Asia Program. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.